Hello, and welcome to the next in our series of Unit Editions uh, podcasts. Now, today I'm joined by Ian Anderson from the Designers Republic, and I'm very happy to say that we've just published the very first um, Designers Republic monograph. Uh, it's a splendid volume. Uh, it's been written by Ian and designed by the, the SPIN team, and it's going to be available very, very shortly. So I thought I'd just take the opportunity to sit Ian down and get him to say a few words, which actually in Ian's case is very, very easy because he's, as you'll find out, he's a very loquacious individual. So Ian, here we are. Early life, when did it dawn on you that design might be a, a career, a suitable career? I think in terms of design as a career, I think the the epiphany came when I realised that I wasn't going to be a super successful, super rich band manager in the music industry. And I, I guess in hindsight, you can you could identify certain things that that might lead you to think that I was going to be a designer. Uh, you know, um, obsessive about maths, uh, math maps. Um, obsessive about flags and football kits as a kid Um, and I guess I'd I'd always looking back had an interest in 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 design but it was but being thrown out of art before O-level something in like the the visual arts was never sort of something that I imagined was going to happen. Either of your parents artistic did they have any interest in art? Uh, I think, well, it's an interesting combination. Um, my mum was a watercolour artist as a hobby, uh, you know, exhibitions in local libraries and community centres, etc. And my dad was a maintenance electrician, so, you know, he's always, for, he's always having to draw circuit diagrams and that, and he's really kind of precise. So, again, in hindsight, if you put those two things together, it's, you know, it's a recipe for success. <laughs> Yeah, obviously. Let's talk a little bit about band management because you you got into managing managing bands, and I think I'm right in saying that that led you to end up doing things like flyers for gigs and stuff. And so, was that the beginning? Was that the start of a design as a as a career? I, I mean, again, I think in, in hindsight it was always there. So when I was at school, I was in a a punk band um, called the Infrared Helicopters. I, I don't know why, but I just ended up doing the, the, the posters for that. Then I went to university and uh, I was in a post-punk band. And um, you also studied philosophy too, didn't you? Yeah, well, in between gigs, yeah. <laughs> but I think being in the band and then I kind of got to the point where I was never really interested in being a musician. I just liked being in a band. And it got to the point where it was so post-punk that you actually had to start learning to play your instrument again. So I kind of sold up and uh, and started running fanzines. So I was like DJing, I was running nights, uh, producing fanzines, putting putting bands on, and that's really what I think led me to be to this band called Person to Person, which was XABC members asking me to manage them. And I think that there was a at one point you were going to be doing the the album cover, weren't you? For, for for the band yeah well i, I mean it, it it's something which which still happens with bands and that's the, this sense of retaining creative control 
And I think there was a sense that, that the band liked some of the flyers that I'd done and, you know, and said, well, you know, if you do the record covers, that means we keep it all in-house. So, you know, I fancied I had some spare letter set and Pantone pens and fancied having a go. So then <laughs> I did that and I worked with um, a guy called Simon Cantwell at CBS Records when it was on Soho Square. And as the band kind of, the band's fortunes waned, you know, he'd kind of say, well, you know, we've got a couple of record covers, do you fancy doing that? But yeah, so we did, uh, I did the first the first album cover I did with, pers- well, for Person to Person. Um, it was interesting. We worked with a photographer called Bob Ellsdale, mm. who had one of those, in his studio, he had one of the only kind of those super reflective screens, uh, sort of front projection. So yeah, I mean, that was interesting. And then... And then through working with Simon uh, on various sort of band projects, I was working with uh, some photo typesetters in North London somewhere. I think they're called Alphabet. But I remember at the time I had no idea about how to mark up for type, so I'd be sort of saying I want you know letters that are two millimetres high and <laughs> one millimetre wide and three millimetres between each letter. So that, uh, they basically gave me a day-long kind of course in in how to mark up in typography effectively so that it was which they said would be quicker than trying to decipher your instructions yeah and to think people go to university and study typography for three years and and you did it overnight it did um and at what point did you move to sheffield so when you're when you're managing person to person are you in sheffield at this point yeah i i went to sheffield in 1979 to go to university so that was that was the end of the punk band, beginning of the post-punk band. So that was 79. And I started working with um, Person to Person, I guess, around 83. Yeah. So, yeah, I was... But you'd left university by then? Yeah, I'd left yeah, university yeah, yeah, yeah. and I was kind of looking for things to do. And I, th- I think I was I was almost at the point where I was thinking of moving back down south, although I didn't really want to, but, you know, to, you know, career opportunities. Yeah. The ones that never knock. Yeah. <laughs> and at some point, I think I'm right in saying about 1986, the Designers Republic opened its doors. Yeah, so, that- so I, I, and I'd been working for like a couple of years doing various record covers. Just, I mean, just for people that I bumped into and also through, as I say, through CBS and Epic Records and and then hanging out with, with I mean, I was a young manager at the time or young designer and you know a lot of my friends were young A&R guys so that there was a there was a link there was a there's a route to market if you like and and we were doing that for a while and then um I started working with a friend of mine called Nick Phillips um who was more artistic than I was I mean I was you know good for ideas but um you know it, it was great it was a nice sort of working relationship because he was much better at the practical side of it um, which you needed at the time, you know, before com- before computers, laptops. But but I, I think the reason we the reason we kind of officially started in in 1986 was was simply because we found out that we could tap into some funding through the enterprise allowance scheme. Although the reality was was that we it it picked up really quickly because of our music contacts. So I, I mean I I don't think we. I think we just put the enterprise allowance scheme money to one side for you know a rainy day, <laughs> a rainy day or, or beers, <laughs> or beer. yeah, or both. Yeah. Um, 
I want to just ask you a little bit about the name because the name Designers Republic, I remember when I first stumbled across it, it, it struck a chord with me. And also I think it, I'm right in saying it ties in with your political views and life in Sheffield, the, 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 the idea of Sheffield as a socialist republic. Can you talk a little bit about that and the, where the name came from? I, I mean, I, I was brought up uh, in Bracknell, Newtown, um, and the southeast for me, even then, kind of felt a little sort of Stepford Wives. <laughs> and, I, and I always felt that I wanted to go and you know, live in a city. And my background, uh, my father and grandfather were trade unionists and I joined Labour Party Young Socialists in Bracknell. And obviously, you know, Sheffield with this uh, working class socialist history was, was attractive in that respect. And there was a lot of stuff in the, you know, in the largely right-wing press still then about Sheffield because of the Labour Council being the Socialist Republic of South Yorkshire. Um, and that was played on in quite a few things, I think, by some of the a local brewery kind of used it. But anyway, so uh, when I was managing person to person as a, uh, the keyboard player, you know, basically, I couldn't use my name because I was the manager. Therefore, there's conflict of interest if I was charging or, you know, for, for doing the artwork. So the guys in the art department at CBS just said, you know, make a name up or whatever. And and I remember Dave saying, like, because, because a lot of the stuff that I was doing or interested in or talking about was uh, Russian sort of constructivism and that kind of thing. You know, he, he kind of coined the phrase, you know, Designers Republic of South Yorkshire, <laughs> which just seemed to me, it seemed sort of as you say, strike a chord with me. And, but the great thing about using it really was at the time we were both myself and, and Nick, neither of us had studied design. He studied sculpture and I studied philosophy. And yet here we were kind of, you know, pulled out designing record covers left, right and center. And it just seemed to be like a, you know, partly a, a, a declaration of independence from like, you know, sort of the, the 80s London media thing, which was, you know, perceived to be all red braces and bow ties and Timmy Malick glasses and, <laughs> you know, the whole sort of agency stereotype, which I'm sure didn't really exist, but it, it, it served our purpose to believe it did. So it, it was a declaration of independence, I guess, and something about being in Sheffield and not being in London. Mm. So it, it kind of worked, you know, it was, it was more than just a name. Yeah. Something that almost always, always struck me about, Designers Republic was this this idea that you you almost seem to run it like like it was a band, and I just wonder. And I was I often think about people like Brody Savile, probably Malcolm Garrett, and you. You all grew up first of all going through the record business, and you would then encounter people who knew how to spin myths and how to create pop pop myths. Did you? consciously or was it just unconscious did you consciously take some of that music industry pizzazz and apply it to designers public because it certainly felt as if you had i think the the reality is that i didn't know any different so i'd or you know from being at school i'd been in bands and all my all my money was spent on music or going to see gigs and then putting bands on uh, or DJing or whatever, that's all linked in with music. And so when it came to sort of formalising uh, or Designers Republic as a 
design studio group or whatever you know even if that's only to the degree of you know we we rented a, a space to have a studio you know there, there was everything that I knew was about how you create myths and and sort of spin uh, in, in pop culture so I mean, the, fir- the very first thing that we did um, before even getting a studio was we, we went to a, a tailor <laughs> in Rotherham uh, who'd made ABCs like gold lame suits for the, you know, Lexington of Love world tour. And the first thing that we did was we went and, and, and got some Nehru suits made, you know, and, and, and so we were already thinking in terms of Gilbert and George or, or the, the visual aspect of being designers or, so it wasn't so much about, you know, we, we wanted to be like a band. It was just that nothing else really occurred to us is that's that's what mm, you do mm. and is that where because the other thing that really stood out for me in the early days of tdr was was the use of um of slogans and the kind of way of talking about being a design group which was like nobody else at the time everybody else was still doing the red braces and you know temi malik um glasses but you you seem to be doing it completely differently does that is that part of the same mentality, the same way of approaching something? Yeah, I think there, there's there's always, for me, there's always been a mentality of of trying to do something different or or standing apart. Um, you know, the Groucho Marx thing of you know you don't be a member of a club that wants you to be a member. <laughs> so I think there's always like a, a, a an element of contrariness, but a, but it, a constructive contrariness that we were you know we were different, but actually kind of. We just wanted to get some Nehru suits made and we wanted to go around and we, we wanted to be like Gilbert and George and also we wanted to design stuff. Mm. So it's, it's not like sitting down and saying, okay, how can we make, how can mm. we be different? And it's along the same lines as when people say, oh, we know about whether we broke the rules of design or not. The reality is, is that we hadn't worked in other design studios. We had no experience whatsoever, or no contact with other design studios mm. or other designers. So we were just doing what felt right or what we wanted to do. And I think that, again, in hindsight, I, I, I was always interested in, in sort of advertising and spin and the idea of what if as opposed to what is. And, and also this, I was also really interested in writing. Mm. So, again, playing with language is sort of something that I've done kind of, you know, from an early age, even going back to school where, you know, it would, it would be, teachers would find it frustrating that I'd want to describe things differently mm. as opposed to in, in, a, in a, you know, an accepted or traditional way. And, and I think it's just, it's just me. I, I don't, it doesn't seem mm. odd or different to yeah. me. It just seems natural. Yeah, no, I, I think that's the way it came across. It didn't come across as calculating. Mm. Uh, it came across as something that was genuine and, and intrinsic and also indicative of, of, of your character. I want to talk a little bit about something that came up when we started working on the book. And when we had the early discussions about doing it, one of the things that you were adamant about and it slightly surprised me, was that you wanted to let people know that Designers Republic was always about ideas. And yet, I have to say, I've always thought of you as being stylists. I mean, supreme stylists in, in the way that constructivists, constructivism is, is, is a style. So I wonder, if, I wonder if, A, have we achieved that in the book? And, and B, is, is, is it realistic to 
almost, which I think is what you've done a little bit, is dis, almost dismiss the idea of being stylist. Because I think there was such a thing, there is such a thing as a TDR style. Um, so I think that uh, I don't I, I, I don't deny that there's a there's a style, although I, I mean it, it, it evolves over the years because there's a is a relatively low boredom threshold, and <laughs> you know I think like a lot of other designers who 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 focus on their own ideas rather than being a, a service industry mm. kind of agency kind of model. It it kind of it kind of changes. Um, but I think I think the question about whether we whether we're stylist is that I don't think it's 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 not that it's not there. It's just not the beginning. And 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 for me, good design the design that we do. If people like it and say it's good design, then the reason it's good design is is it's because good or better design better communicates the idea or the solution to the problem so that that there's you know there's 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 parallels say with modern art or conceptual art where it's not about how it looks it's just about the idea but for me quite often the idea doesn't really come across because the artist has has bypassed any sense of aesthetic engagement so we do we do style things up. We are very interested in how things look and in, in and in the detail, but it's there to communicate or better communicate an idea, mm-hmm. or it could be that it's there to better disguise the idea. You know, sometimes you don't really want the idea to be obvious. <laughs> you know, but but it's but but what we do visually in terms of what most people would consider design is there to to improve. The communication and to and to draw people in, uh, you know. Yeah, and I think also I think I think people's obsession and, and probably my own my obsession with TDR style is to do with the fact that most of your work was to a certain extent still is um, music work. So maybe maybe you could say something about working for maybe working for Warp, for instance. But also maybe maybe if we just took one particular example like Orteca and said, um, maybe if you could talk about the relationship between you and Orteca. I think the best creative relationships are built on trust. And I think that the, I think that the best design decision anyone or any potential client can make is to choose the right designer, people that have similar interests, inspirations, reference points, attitudes etc so with Orteca there's it's a great relationship I think for both sides but I can only really speak for me but it's great because there's a there's a trust there it's sometimes there's a, a there's not really any briefing or di- or direction per se but there are prompts um, but quite often they'll be talking about I, I, I I'm not so interested in listening to the music before I design something, I'm more interested in talking to the, the musicians, the artists about what their influences and their inspirations for this particular body of music or set of songs, you know, tracks. It's and that's what I that's where I kind of start to to build, you know, inspiration, and that's where I kind of start to build the idea. And I think the great thing in in that context, the great thing. Uh, for me, working with Orteca is that there's a lot of it is now unsaid because we know each other so well. Mm. 
that, you know, a few, there's that kind of thing, I'm not, you know, where you kind of finish each other's sentences. Mm -hmm. Working with them, you know, it, it's, it's, again, because we've known each other a long time, we kind of work quite remotely. We don't kind of sit down over a few beers and, you know, and sort of about what the album cover could be. But there's, um, there's an interesting uh, thing, like the way that I work with Orteca or the way that I work with, say, Richard Aphex Twin. So Orteca, there was one of the, one of the ideas for a, a Designers Republic book, you know, the, the many ideas that we had was just a book of the emails mm -hmm. between Rob and Sean and from Orteca and, and me because they're kind of copious and we talk about things, you know, about inspirations and that. And, and it's all... It's almost like the idea is already there, mm -hmm. but we're enjoying like, you know, exploring it, you know, between us. Whereas with Richard, it's like, you know, a one, two line email from him mm -hmm. and then me going, yeah, I get it. And then here's the artwork, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> but, but it's a, it's a, it, it is a good relationship. And, and I think this, and it, you know, for all designers, you know, that it's, it's true that if you have a client who trusts you, then you'll deliver you mm. you deliver better work. And what's interesting is when clients come and they they want to control the process, mm -hmm. and then they're kind of disappointed they don't get something as as creative as as mm -hmm. the stuff they liked in in the first place that was done with people who aren't so controlling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, talking about publishing correspondence, that that's made me think of something else that I always thought was totally remarkable about Designers Republic, and that you guys. Very, very early on in the days of the internet, you set up a, a message board. And that message board became, and you can quote some figures for us, but that, that message board became fantastically successful. And it was so unlike anything else any other design group was doing. It also alerted me to something, which is that as far as I can tell, Designers Republic is the first design group, graphic design design group, that actually had a following outside of design because a lot of those people on that message board weren't necessarily designers or if they were they were people on the way to becoming to becoming one that seems to me a kind of a really extraordinary moment in 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 british graphic design not to be too kind of pompous about it well i, I mean more interestingly i think not that your point isn't it interesting <laughs> of course but but more yeah, interestingly yeah. we didn't set the news group up we we were alerted to it I think some like three or four months. But this is all before Facebook. This is all before social yeah, yeah. media. It's a very early internet-based message board. Yeah, message system. board, old school message board. Yeah. Um, and I think that, so we kind of latched onto it and, and we kind of started to, we started to like respond to some things on there. But with, without any real plan, it was just, mm. it, it, I mean, the most, the interesting thing for me was that, that it existed at all, that mm, other people yeah. had kind of set it up. And it was really sort of based along the lines of, uh, you know, we, 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 we set up the company as the Designers Republic and we talked about it as being like a, a mission, you know, state of mind, etc. And this, the, 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 the message board, the news group was, was Neo-DR. And the idea, I think, from the people who set it up was that kind of this was their designer's republic, mm. you know, kind of as a, as a, you know, the bastard offspring of, <laughs> you know, the real designer's mm. republic or whatever. But it, it got up to the, it got to the point where I think 
at its, its peak, there were something like 60,000 subscribers. Mm, yeah. And we, we transferred it onto our website when we eventually got around to doing one in about 2000, I think. And actually, that, that was probably a mistake because it, the, the sort of the, the success of it, the, you know, the, the, the numbers involved kind of continued growing. But we realized that the, the, the problem is that if you have it, if you, so it's great to, have, to, to drive traffic to your website because people have to get to the news group via the website. But once it's, you know, kind of located on your website, then you have to kind of police it a little bit more. Mm. Because it, it, because although you can say, you know, the views expressed here aren't, uh, mm-hmm. etc., you know, it's still there, and so it's great for, sort of for fans. But if you've got potential clients coming and reading some of the, the sort of the obscure stuff there, you know, it, it's not so good. So eventually, we kind of we just closed it down. But but it was a great thing, and it, and and you know the the excerpts of it. I mean, it's it's about like five percent. Of, of total like posts but you know the the excess you know in the ur tdr bonus kickstarter volume it, it's and it's but the great thing reading back to it now is that it's a real snapshot of time of what people mm. you know young designers professional designers or people interested in design kind of what their interests were you know around the turn of the century you know i think it's it was a a really interesting thing and and for me it's also i think one of the first things i spoke to you and and, and to tony about when we we're doing the book was in fact it was tony uh who who mentioned it first was that the interesting thing about designers republic you know is the cultural engagement that that, that we that we kind of created or followed or wanted to promote that was that's the that's always been a driving force for designers republic it's always been about people and how we connect with people whether it's clients or audience that's the key that's the really key thing so the the news group was was like manna from heaven for us really yeah yeah. before we talk about the book there's just two topics i want to just draw you out on very quickly and one is japan because uh, again i think one of the remarkable things about um tdr was was that you had a, a following in japan a whole issue of idea magazine i think was devoted entirely to tdr and, and in doing so you nearly bankrupted the poor magazine but that's another story and you you had even had a shop i think am i right in saying you had a shop in yeah japan. we had a shop um off cat street in narajuku and uh, the people's bureau uh, i mean the, the, the japan thing i think it really started because we were we weren't alone in this but but we were really interested in in modern japanese culture and it manifested itself in 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 different ways one of them was that like a lot of people at the time you know our sacred text was blade runner and in Blade Runner, you had the, you know the huge TV screens, you know, on the side of buildings and spaceships kind of you know, flying past them, you know, and and in you know you go to Tokyo and and they had huge TV screens. <laughs> they also had so they had the biggest kind of technology, but they also had the best boys gadgets, you know, and Walkmans, Discmans. So it just seemed that like if 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 as we were, you're interested in the near future rather than the what if rather than sort of you know Star Trek kind of thousands of years in the future, then sort of Tokyo seems to be a, a, a great shorthand 
to express that. There's also the thing that, uh, in parallel to that, but not directly related, was this this sense you know you talked about you know, the words and things and and it's and it's typographic and written communication that that, I, that really comes quite naturally to me, which is why there's a lot of slogans, but it's also that sense of how far can you abstract any communication before it becomes unintelligible. So we were using a lot of Japanese typography. Some of it literally just lifted from Japanese publications. We know that we, we like the look of <laughs> the word, and, and so we just put that there. But we, it was always the case that we were, you know, a design company, a youngish design company based in northern England, and we were looking at it from that perspective. We weren't trying to emulate or become sort of Japanese. It was always the fact that we didn't, we liked playing with the idea that we didn't understand anything mm. that we were playing with. It just, we just liked, liked the fact that it said something, even if we didn't know what it was. So there was mm. this whole, this playing around with this sort of Japanese typography. And even to the extent where we started to redraw, uh, you know, katakana, kanji uh, characters to, to emulate roman characters but have a japanese kind of feel you know that that kind of ran its course and there's also the other fascinations of your designers republic in terms of people in terms of consumerism and why people do what they do um which is another podcast i guess but you know <laughs> but but again you know japan seemed to be you know uh just the, the mecca for consumerism at the time and um and i think that one of the reasons that we became, you know, super popular, you know, relatively in, in in Japan, was the fact that we were we were kind of taking coals to Newcastle, but the coals weren't looking like coals anymore. <laughs> so the Japanese audiences could recognise it, but it didn't make any sense to them. It, so it was almost giving them a parallel universe. And I remember when we uh, had our uh, show at the Ginza Graphic Gallery, there, were, there was a few... Uh, of the old guard, you know, Japanese, you know, well-respected Japanese designers from sort of 60s, 70s and 80s, you know, who were who echoing each other's uh, points that that really Designers Republic was a really good thing for young Japanese designers because mm. whereas kind of modern, in modern terms, historically, there's a, there was always a sense that copying was the best form of, mm. of learning and moving forwards. So there was a sense that it was always like a Western influence they they said that it was good that the way that <clears throat> that we had worked and reinterpreted Japanese design for our own ends, mm. but the but one of the fallouts from that was that young Japanese designers, you know, felt that they had their own heritage that that they could explore that it didn't seem so commonplace and they could see their own culture through somebody else's eyes in the same way that we could see Western culture through some young design Japanese designers' eyes. Mm. Yeah, that makes lots of sense. So last question before we talk briefly about the book but you're very involved in teaching now you you teach on run workshops and things what does that give you how does that aid your practice i think there's, there's a there's a there's two things about teaching that i really enjoy one of them is is obviously working with younger let's say by dint of age naive people and young designers you know who are, who are coming up who are, who are exploring ideas with a less in a less knowing way and it, that harks back to the designers republic at the beginning for me in that we didn't really know 
So some of the things, you know, we, you know, we were condemned to repeat things that had gone before us because of ignorance. But other times, you know, because we didn't know any rules, then we'd do stuff that that people thought was like amazing. How can you think of that? Whereas for us, it was a bit like, well, how else would you, <laughs> you know, solve that mm. problem? And so, that, so there's there's that kind of sense. It's really interesting working with, you know, young designers, and also you know, getting a you know, keeping relatively fresh mm. and not just existing our own in our own echo chamber. Mm. So that that's good. And but I think it's also, you know, we're talking about the thinking behind Designers Republic's work, and you know, to to maintain that in over sort of thirty odd years, you need it's a little bit like. And, you know, an athlete has to train to keep their, their body fit. And and I think it's the same for for people like designers who who want to push the design, the thinking um, and the problem solving. My wife thinks that I'm kind of self-obsessed because, I, you know, she's <laughs> sort of, I don't know. How could you possibly I, you think know, that? I think, I think I should be as a designer, but she'll laugh if I'm if she if she catches me reading, you know, a, a column I've written in a magazine or some of the texts for the book. But the reality is, is that it's it's really interesting sometimes to to stand back and read something that you've written. And so for me, when I'm teaching, I find it kind of quite interesting when it because I'm forced to think about what I do because a student will ask, well, what would you do in this situation? And and historically, I mean, thirty three years you can talk about history, can't you? But but, but historically, I've. Um, I've worked really intuitively and, and I try to avoid being too aware of what I'm doing for fear that it, you know, that I might get bored with it if I knew what I was doing. Mm. But explaining something to younger designers, you know, it's, 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 I'm not saying I'm getting to know myself or anything <laughs> sort of poncy like that, but there is an element that, that it, by having to explain something, I, I, if it pushes me to think about yeah, it in a different yeah. way. And you can only explain it if you understand it yourself. So, That's right. So I think teaching aids understanding. Yeah. Maybe this is a good moment to sort of um, talk about the book. And I also I should say, I should have said at the beginning really, that this is, I think I'm right in saying, this is the third attempt to produce a TDR book. At least. At least. And um, what's significant about this one is that we funded it through Kickstarter. So I'd like to take this opportunity to thank everyone who pledged and have, have by doing so, made, made this book possible. So do you want to just say something about it, what it means to you? And also maybe i just pull you up on something you said when we were working on the book. And you said you have an aversion to ending things. You have a, an aversion to sort of things coming to a conclusion. Was there a sense in which the book never happened because you didn't want to put a full stop on, on any aspect of TDR. I think the, <clears throat> the reality is that the, the book never happened before because the book that I, that I wanted to make is kind of impossible to do. And it, and it took me, you know, 25 years to not to realize it, but, but to come to terms with that. So the original idea was, for the book for me was that we would take the work that we that we'd done and reinterpret it in the book so that I mean, effectively what that means is you're redesigning x number of pieces of work over x number of pages the first the first book was um 
I mean, and, th and this this was a problem even when when we were asked to do a book when we were eight years old. <laughs> you know, so when you got to like 25, 30 years, I mean, it, it's it's the problem is just multiplied by, you know, God knows how much work. I mean, we've done like over 5,000 record covers, so to try and rework all of those. So the the ambition really was was admirable but foolhardy. I mean, and I think that, you know, the, so the first book with Booth Cliburn, and he said, you know, what do you want it to be, dear boy? <laughs> and, um, and and at the time, they'd just done the Damien Hirst book and and my wife was was doing some work with, with Damien. You know, and so basically I just said I want it to be like a centimetre taller, a centimetre wider and a centimetre thicker than Damien's book. <laughs> you know, and, and, and at the time, Edward said, you know, I... I you know, you're biting off more than you can chew, but we knew best <laughs> and never did it. So, we've, so there's been numerous attempts. So, I, I think that it, it is partly to do with the fact that never wanting wanting to have a full stop, you know, and you know the the, the things that you know that we treasure the most are options, and you know that when people ask what's the best piece of design you've you've done, it's always like the next one, yeah. and things like that. But I don't. I don't really see AZTTR as as being a full stop. I think you know it's it's a stopping point. But I mean, it was it was it was good because I think that uh, it was it was always before you know DR went bust in two thousand and nine. There was always that sense that no one can do a DR book. Only we can do it because only we can reinterpret our work and only we understand it the way that we wanted other people to understand it. And again, I think that's a, that's a, it's an interesting or, it's, you know, it's a, it's a great ambition to have. But, uh, but after, after I went bust and I did, and there was a few really nice interviews that I did around that time and conversations I had with other designers, you know, around that time when it, it, it suddenly sort of dawned on me that actually I was more, I was really interested in somebody else doing the book. The, the the best I could hope for if I controlled how the book was going to be was I knew how it was going to be. Mm. There was there was nothing coming back. Whereas somebody else doing a book about about you know the design of your public's work, you know, is is potentially more interesting. You know, uh, which which pieces do you think we should show? Because I'm I'm pretty sure that if we'd have done the book, if we'd have ever got round to doing the book. I think that you know it would it would have been a great thing, but I'm not I'm not sure that we would have included the work that other people really wanted mm, to see. Yeah. Well, I think um, it's this is a good moment maybe to to um, come to a, a halt. If people are interested, they can go to the um, Unit Editions website and see for themselves whether they think this um, yeah, it's called A to Z of TDR. A to Z of the Designers Republic. You can see for yourself whether you think it's um, uh, a success or not. So before we wrap up, I just want to do a very quick run of questions. I think there are about 10 here. And you can just, if, if such a thing is possible, Ian, if you could sort of give yourself just one word answers. Let's see if we can, uh, if we can wrap this up. So here we go. Bill Hicks or Tommy Cooper? Oh, oh God. Are oh, you in pain? Um, Bill Hicks. Okay. Brody or Savile? Ooh. You can do it. Come on. 
Oh, God. Uh, Brody. Okay, interesting. Cabaret Voltaire or Aphex Twin? Uh, Cabaret Voltaire, first love, lost love. <laughs> okay. Uh, curry or fish and chips? Curry. <laughs> Good. I'm watching I, my figure. Yeah, I knew I knew that would be your answer. Tokyo or Sheffield? Sheffield. Okay. Freehand or InDesign? Freehand. That was easy. Helvetica or Universe? Helvetica. Instagram or Twitter? Instagram. Trotsky or Lennon? John Lennon. Oh, well, it was going to be any. It was going to be a difficult choice, but you just made it easy. Uh, I don't know. The writings of Trotsky. Okay. Digital or analog? That's not an either or. Okay. Good answer. Nightclub or a quiet night in? <laughs> uh, can I have a quiet night out? Yeah. Yep. Okay. And last one, vinyl or download? Okay, I can't answer that in one word because vinyl, in terms of it's got packaging and it's tactile, but it's also it's a bit antiques roadshow. <laughs> so I mean, I, the whole thing. I, I don't. I honestly, I don't get the the format. You know how you listen to it. It's what you listen to. I think so. You know, by any means necessary, really. I'm, I'm probably CD. Mm, that's interesting. <laughs> Especially at a time when people are going back to cassettes. So, um, yeah. yeah, why not? Why not, not CDs? Anyway, Ian, thanks for doing that. I could see some of some of those questions caused you a certain amount of discomfort. Um, <laughs> and thanks for taking part in this podcast. As usual, you've been you've been great. And I hope um, people will take the opportunity to go and visit the Unit Editions website and have a look at uh, the, the new book. But thanks very much. Okay, thank you. <laughs>